0: Welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. I'm Angie, and for this week's episode, I am excited to chat with Dr. Sho Tsuji. Sho is an assistant professor at the University of Tokyo, where she directs the an IRC and Baby Lab. Her core research interests involve understanding how babies acquire language efficiently. In this episode, we chat about her recent work on approaching this question from a computational perspective. A paper titled, Scala, A Blueprint for Computational Models of Language Acquisition in Social Context. Sho explained why a computational perspective is crucial for understanding language acquisition. She also shared her perspective on large language models as a human language acquisition researcher. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. I am so excited to talk to you today on the topic of language acquisition. Unsurprisingly, given the central role of language acquisition in cognitive science, this is not at all the first time that we (laughs) discuss this topic related to language acquisition on the show. However, this is the first time that we will take a computational approach to it. And the title of the paper that we are going to discuss today is S C A L A, which I assume is pronounced as SCALA. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes, Yes, I got that right. A blueprint for computational models of language acquisition in social context. So before we dive right in this paper and this blueprint, maybe we can start with the background. Why is it important to use computational models, this computational approach to study language acquisition?
1: Well, hi. So I'm also very excited and honored to be here today. So I'm actually myself really a developmental psychologist. So I'm not really a computationalist at all. And maybe to correct a little bit the impression of the paper title, this is not an actual computational model, but it's more a framework. Computational models themselves can be really important for language acquisition because we can model, for instance, extreme cases like what happens if a child never has any language input? What happens if it learns 10 languages uh, simultaneously? Right. So cases that we cannot really test in human infants, for instance, really important applications of computational models. But in this case, um uh, for me, thinking about things as if I wanted to build a computational models without having the skills to actually do it, allows a very systematic view of what kind of elements you might need to put into a learner and what kind of things they might need as an input to even arrive at the amazing output that human infants have, namely acquiring their language in such a good way. So for me, it is really another method to think through things in a particular systematic way. Uh, and so in this paper, I actually teamed up with two other researchers, Emmanuel Dupont, who is an actual expert on computation and who could potentially help us to actually make it a computational model implemented. And Alexandria Christia, who actually is a researcher that works a lot on language acquisition across many different cultures, uh, where we again come to the application of computational models. Namely, there are so many different languages in the world, but we do not necessarily have access to all the communities. But it is really important to look at the diversity to really understand it. And so I think these are two things very close to my heart, like really trying to understand language acquisition within the realistic context of a very
0: diverse world and input, and thinking through it in a very, very systematic way. I see. That's really helpful background. And I think in the paper, uh, you mentioned that this paper is really focusing on the idea of this ideal learners, um, which I quote, learner whose ultimate goal is to learn language and who is optimal at it. So I'm kind of stuck at this sentence for a bit because I'm kind of curious Mm -hmm. about how do you define what is optimal? Yeah, probably I would not really even want to
1: answer this question very directly because I don't think there is a right answer to how do you learn language in optimal way. I think this is really, really meant in the context of a computational model again, where we say like, well, because already language learning is such a hard problem that we just assume the learner themselves just does everything in a very smooth way. So in this sense, it means that if there is a given input, for instance, I guess we know our ears can process sounds, but not our eyes, right? So I mean, this is a very easy example, but this is done quite automatically. But for instance, if we think about language, we have statements and questions, and we might want to think, okay, our learner in this case can already distinguish statement and questions because we don't even want to deal with how they come up with this distinction. So it just means we make certain assumptions about what the learner can already do with the input. They know that they have to process the auditory input and the visual input in different ways. They know that a question is not a statement. And so in this way, they just already can do certain things that we need to assume to even (laughs) try to understand how then they can process this language.
0: Got it. That is really helpful. And since you were already talking a little bit about the input of language acquisition, and one thing that I think I really appreciate this paper of is Clearly laying out the three types of information that are relevant for language acquisitions, so the first thing is language as structures, and given how abstract this sounds, can you walk us through what this is about? Yes, as I mentioned there
1: were several goals of this paper, but like one other goal of this paper was really to try to unite different views on different traditions on of research and language acquisition because often these traditions that are all really important have somewhat operated in Independent ways and they haven't really come together. And especially if you try to build a model, you might need to think about how you can all kind of puzzle it together. And so when I talk about language structure, it is really all the um, elements of language that are just inherent in the auditory, if it's speech or like visual, if it's a sign language signal. So for instance, it means if we stick to speech, just because it's a little bit more frequent. What's the order of sound that is allowed in a certain language? This can really differ between languages. For instance, if you think about something like Russian, you can have a lot of consonant clusters that are really hard to pronounce, which might not necessarily be, be allowed in English. Or like, what's the word order that is allowed in a language, right? So the grammatical structure. So all these structural elements we think about as language as structure. So this might, for instance, teach a baby that a word like dog is something that would be allowed in English, right? It's not something that is considered a word. But then only knowing that the structure uh, is allowed does still not teach the child what a dog is. And that's the second level that we talk about in this paper, namely, I think, language as a representation of the world or something like this, like language as a link to the world or something. So this means that language actually is not only existent as a structure, but it is meant For us to describe things in the world. Oh yeah, language is a description of the world. That's how we call it. It's very easy, Kate. It would mean that, uh, the child somehow learns that the string, the structural string dog is related to this animal that is a dog. And this can also relate to more harder things like feelings, right? Like sad is related to a certain feelings. So basically the second level is how language relates to the world. Um, and really, if you think about language studies, this has often really been studied somehow, um, in, in very different contexts right so we mm-hmm. try to learn how babies can learn to distinguish these sounds how they can learn to put words together but then it's very different experiments and studies that try to look into how babies then learn to connect the structure to to things in the world um, and then the third um, level that we're talking about in the paper is language as a social construct this means that really this comes from traditions that really assume that we can only talk about learning language within the context of social interaction because language basically is communication. And so uh, anything that you only hear language because there is social interaction, right? Because even connected to the world and everything still might not tell you about everything that is really essential to communication. Just saying hello, uh, um, somehow communicating, this is right, this is wrong, you can do this, you cannot do this, etc. So anything that you learn about language really, um it's... um it's born out of this construct of social interaction, uh, which again has been studied in somewhat a different tradition. And so we just tried to kind of put these all together and somehow yeah integrate them in one
0: framework. Right. That's a really, really helpful background on this part of the paper. And I'm kind of curious about features or properties of language because Language as structure, language as a description of the world, language as a social sort of contract. I agree those are very essentials to language being used and being, I don't know, just like functioning in the current world. But I'm also kind of curious about if there's anything special about those things, like specifically to human language. Because if I think about it, you can probably argue that sometimes the dog would understand that, you know, like a word is attached to uh, certain things. But nobody would argue that those things are actually language that they understand. It's probably just a mapping between sound and the part, uh, as a part of the world. And then there's also like animal calls that has a lot of structures to it. So I'm just curious if you can say more about to what extent um, these properties of human language is something distinct and how is it different from other like animal communication system that also has these features?
1: Your answer to again, a very, very uh, hard question. And honestly, I'm rather like a little bit agnostic about what, where we put the boundary between language and not language, because I think there's some research that would argue that only humans actually have language, while others would argue that. For instance, birds have language because they have actually quite a a complex structure in their core, uh, sounds, or other animals have uh, language because they can use them in functional or social ways. So yeah, I think there's argument pro and con, and it really depends on how exactly you want to define it. But I think what is just really unique about human language is that on all these levels, we can use it in such complex ways. As you already, you mentioned animal calls. So mostly, for instance, when animals communicate really mostly like one certain call or sound just has one signification, but it is very rare, like indeed almost only in birds that you see that they can combine different calls in a way to kind of generate a different meaning. Right. So this is, for instance, one example for uh, this yeah, structural complexity that that happens in human, the way that we can generate large amount of different combinations of things that we can Apply it to yeah to to inner states to outer things. We can talk about the past, the future, etc. And of course, all of this and this is again, I think, a thing where scholars differ a little bit in their opinion because then how much of this do you attribute to language uniquely versus just to human cognitive capacities, right? So the fact that we can talk about the past does not only have to do with the fact that we have language that expresses that, which we do not necessarily see in the animal world, but Also with the fact that we might have the cognitive capacity to represent uh, something different than the present. I think I really don't have a very strong opinion about these things, except for that in its whole, I think humans are very social and they have very high cognitive capacities. So I think all of this together really leads to a structure
0: that is really
1: unseen in the animal world.
0: I see. That is really helpful. Um, and now I think it's a good time to actually talk about this framework, Scala, uh, which stands for socio-computational architecture of language acquisitions. So I know in the paper you provided a really helpful diagram, clearly clarifying the major components of it. Unfortunately, we can't really present diagram on a podcast, so maybe we can just walk walk us through one by one. So there are three major components, um, and the first being the probabilistic models. And I'm wondering if you can just explain this for our audience who might not necessarily have a lot of technical background. Like, what does it even mean?
1: Yes, maybe I think we might not have to go into those very technical details, but stay on a bit conceptual level because I think it's really hard if you don't have anything written to it. But basically, uh, we have three models and probabilistic model just um, is intended to say that it represents a probability distribution so that we can estimate, yeah, Lately, how probable something w- will occur based on the input right and then we have one actually we have in a sense three corresponding to these three levels of language that we already talked through so if you just take on the the language model here then it would actually really represent based on the input what the child this ideal learner has learned about for instance how just um, sound strings can occur after each other so the likelihood the, the well the probability of probably is likely, and it's probably not the right word, if a real computation person at the probability distribution of a certain verbal form, right? And this can then be updated based on the input. And in the same way, we have other models that, for instance, represent the visual input or like rather the world input. So it's not only visual, but also something that is related to feelings. So you already see that we take some, because we really focus on how the baby can link these sounds to something in the world. So we don't even bother to explain how the baby can uh, distinguish feelings versus a visual input, right? If it's something that is in the external world, for us, it's kind of, in a sense, the same here. Then we have something that can link the two together, right? So if you hear a dog and see a dog, like you, you also somehow store that these occur together. And finally, we have something that the dialogue world that corresponds to this social interaction that I talked about it helps the baby to generate a certain output based on what the input was. So for instance, if they have heard a question from their social interaction partner, then that could kind of tell them, well, now it's an appropriate time to actually have an answer ready. So we really try to integrate these three parts of what you can consider important parts in the language uh, learning process.
0: Yeah, so I know that in uh, the learning algorithm part of this framework, you mentioned a couple of different ways, different learning algorithms, like unsupervised learning, reinforcement learning, supervised learning. And all of these kind of feel like vocabulary from computer science. Um, And I think they are. So I'm wondering if you can provide some concrete examples of how human learners are experiencing this in their actual learning social context.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so indeed, so these learning algorithms, they are like another part, in in addition to the models, and they explain how babies can process a certain input. One example, so unsupervised learning would basically mean, and probably people have heard this like in the news, et cetera, right? When you uh, talk about ChatGPT, et cetera, right? Like these big models, I think the word people have might have heard. But what it essentially is saying is that basically you get an input, but you do not get any clue on what it is actually referring to. So for instance, if you hear dog, you do not get like the visual uh, dog to it. So in the real world, it might mean, for instance, imagine the baby is sitting there and then the father is saying to the mother, oh, yesterday I saw a dog. And so this actually gives babies the speech stream. So from this, for instance, they can learn, as I say, that dog is a legitimate speech chunk in English, but that they don't really get any other clues from it. However, we know that over time, because even if you do not get any additional clues, these big learning algorithms that also babies can be really good at extracting information from these kinds of things. For instance, if the chunk dog occurs quite often, then babies might read out that dog is actually an independent word that is something different from the before, yesterday, after. So um uh, even like without any labels, we can actually extract statistical regularities from input. <coughs> Uh, but then there's so we can consider this signal that is very often there because we hear a lot of speech input that is unlabeled, but that where it might be a bit hard to actually get so much out of it, right? Uh, unless we have a lot from it, and then we have two other yeah big classification that we can make, which is reinforcement learning and supervised learning. And if you go to the because unsupervised supervised is a good opposition, the supervised would indeed mean you actually get the label. So, for instance, if you hear dog, for instance, you have the dad or the mom pointing at the dog and say, dog. So this is actually a supervised learning signal, right? And that we could consider quite informative uh, because it might make it quite easy for the baby to learn this association from it. And And then reinforcement learning is, for instance, if the baby says dog and points at the dog and then the dad or the mom say, yes, this is a dog. This is actually a positive reinforcement or it says cat and the baby says cat and then they think no. Then it is actually a negative reinforcement. And this is actually something also in machine learning models that helps the models because if the model usually they learn based on big data and then they give a certain solution and in unsupervised learning, no one tells them so much about <laughs> what, what is up with the solution. But actually, if someone says yes or no, then actually this is good information for the next round, right? In a sense. And going back to that, so another case of the supervised learning instance, if the baby said, cat and then the dad says, no, this is already good information to know that it's a no, but it is not everything. But then this would become, again, a supervised, really informative signal if they said, no, this is not a cat, this is a dog, right? Because then again, they get the right label. So in this case, these are some concrete examples how you can think through it. And I just mentioned already ChatGPT. And so one reason why ChatGPT is actually so successful is because there is actually human feedback involved, right? So there are some humans that for a portion of data, they actually give quite intricate feedback. So we have thought about this Scala thing for years before we published it, uh, what, one or two years ago. But actually, we know from machine learning how these different kinds of signal have different information value. And. We know that, for instance, supervised learning is actually much easier for machine learning models, but it's very costly because you need these humans that somehow create these labels. So the big challenge is to actually have models learn from big data sets of unsupervised data. And what's something like chatGBT has shown that even if a small chunk of data is annotated, that can actually already make a huge difference if it's the right kind of information, right? And so in a sense, like, what, what we try to do in Scala is to measure how much of this very informative supervised versus not-so-informative unsupervised information actually exists in babies' input. Because we know that both exist, but we do not know so much how much of each is there. And so with this um, framework, we try to create a framework where really uh, we can potentially measure the amount, in a sense, of these different kinds of information that babies can get. And this would allow us to measure this across different cultures because it might be quite different in, for instance, like this kind of pointing and saying, this is a dog. Uh, uh, it's sometimes considered a quite Western thing to do, which might not happen in other cultures. And it would be really interesting to understand how these different kinds of signals occur in different languages and then how they might relate to language development.
0: Right. Um, I really appreciate you connecting all of these to ChatGPT and these large language models that are really popular these days. And I kind of help but wonder that, so there are a lot of discussion about how these large language models is almost like black box, like nobody actually, how it works, what are the mechanisms, it's just like, they just seem to make something and make it bigger and somehow it just gets better. So for someone without much background into the literature of language acquisition, they might think, okay, like you don't actually need to spell all of these things out. To made a model that somehow acquire language, so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on um, to what extent Scala can <laughs> provide additional insights into language acquisition, given that we already have something that kind of already learned language, although I feel like people might probably have questions about whether it's actually learn a language or not,
1: yeah.. I- I guess we have now really seen that we can go very far without actually understanding so much about what's going on. Maybe, and I think this is really hard because I think people might not have predicted necessarily that something like ChatGPT occurs now and so quickly. And revolutionize really our world at this point in time. Uh, I would say based on this experience that probably we can go very far just because we have these huge amounts of data in generating something that is like language. I guess for us, it's more about understanding how babies learn language, right? In a sense, yeah. as I said, we take this computational view as a framework to try to categorize how different kinds of language input actually might affect learning. So for me, the primary goal was not to make something like chat but to understand so what kind of information does the baby actually have available? In a sense, like for us, also some cognitive processes are, of course, a little bit like a black box, right? Because we can't dissect the brain and all its anatomy. But I guess already like having a really clear sense of the input and the output can give us more insight into the processes. If you want to look at them, which people that create something like chatGBT don't even do because their goal is rather to increase the output some way. But I do think that... um These kind of ideas, like, for instance, giving more human feedback, etc., are actually based on human-inspired work, right? So I guess the idea of the engineers to do it is based on the fact that we know that we do that usually as humans, right? Although it might not help us necessarily to understand the mechanisms within the black box, looking at the human input can actually provide insights for these AI technology. And this is exactly what this paper is trying to do. So looking at what the human input actually is.
0: I see. That is really helpful. Um, and I know in the later part of the paper, you laid out a couple of research areas that are highlighted or suggested by this framework. And I'm wondering if you can give us a tour in terms of what are some exciting research areas pointed out by Scala, And um, are there anything that you are currently working on?
1: Yeah, so I think one main thing is really the the reason why we came up with this framework now is that, as you probably also know, many researchers around the world now are actually working with these little wearable devices, which is really based on like more recent technological development over the last two decades. We can actually make quite small audio recorders, right? And so this way we can record. Basically, we let babies wear these audio recorders and they they just go about their day. And this way, because it's kind of low-tech devices, we can use them in many cultures. So right now, people have been building corpora of these kind of really daily input things around the world. However, these are these big data and we usually analyze how many words babies hear around the world, how this differs, but we haven't had so far a framework that can really distinguish these qualitative distinctions that I just laid out around the information value of these different kinds of input. And so this is, I think, one of the most exciting applications, hopefully of our framework that would might help us to actually categorize the different kinds of input categories that we hear in these standard recordings and see how this pans out uh, across different cultures. And so, yeah, right now I'm working on annotation schemes for these because yeah, ideally, of course, you could uh, automatically extract all of these things but this is a little bit hard so we first try to hand on a tape kind of uh, chance of these data and to see yeah where we can get with this and to count up these different instances of input and characterize the cultural diversity within
0: this um i don't know if you are willing to share but i'm curious about how many participants they you have in this data set that you're building and where are they all from <clears throat> So I personally uh, only collect uh, data from
1: Japanese babies. And there, for instance, we have a sample size of 30 babies that actually we ask parents to record for a whole weekend every three months. So this is quite a lot. So if you then uh, think about that, I guess if you have eight hours per day times two, and then you have 30 babies, then at each age, you have kind of 480 hours of speech and then five measurement occasions. So that's quite a lot then people around the globe have been doing this. And there's researchers like, for instance, my collaborator, Alex Christian, who is on this paper, who is trying to synthesize these data from across the world. And I think she has from over 10 different social linguistic communities, she has data. And I think this amounts to over 5,000 hours of speech. So this is the amount we're talking about.
0: That really is a lot. And especially thinking of the, the commitment that it took for the parents to sign up for the study and continue contributing to it. That is super inspiring. Um, and I know that we are toward the end of our, of our episode, but I really would like to learn a little bit more about your personal trajectories into this topic. So how did you become interested in language acquisition? Is this something that you've always studied when you started your academic career?
1: And um, so I studied psychology, just cognitive psychology first. And I guess, like many people that grow up a little bit in mixed cultural backgrounds, so I'm German Japanese. Uh, I was quite interested in yeah the effects of culture on cognition in general, first and looked into research in that. I, I saw that on the podcast you have also interviewed Kitayama Sensei, so that was I think one of the first kind of books that I read that I found very fascinating. But then, so actually, my parents are both researchers in physics, so. For me, like the kind of cross-cultural was a little bit intimidating because culture is such a big term. So this is why actually in the end, I wanted to always do this cultural comparisons. But in the end, I kind of uh, learned about linguistics. And I thought that was actually great because linguistics is such a well-defined and very logical, almost mathematical topic. So really languages are well-defined. You can look into a speech sound, sound waves. So it's a very kind of, you can, in a sense, quantify the differences very precisely, often compared to something more big like culture. And so for me, it was a topic that I was quite comfortable with going into this comparative research. So this is why I got into language comparison. And then I guess really the the developmental part, again, was really more for me based on this more kind of scientific thinking of, if you look at adults, I think during my master's, I looked into cross-linguistic adult stuff. And I found it so hard because adults, they already know so much, right? And then depending on the person, they have different experiences. It blew my mind. So again, for me, like as cross-cultural, just blew my mind was too complex for me. Adults were too complex for me. They know so much about language. How can you control for their previous experience? So this is why I got into babies. And of course, babies have their own challenges. For them. But right. um, at least from these two points of view, I guess I found it quite
0: easy to understand what I'm actually looking at when I'm researching things. I see. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your fascinating journey into this topic. And I would like to thank you again for coming on the show and talk about this paper. And I pretty much look forward to your future work. And thank you again. Thank you so much for the interview. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or our podcast in general. Or if you have any other suggestion for future guests or topics for the podcast, you can click on the link to the survey attached in the show note or reach us at stanfordpsychpodcasts at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at Pod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.